Welcome to podcast number 179 of My Favorite Detective Stories. Today's date is September 20th, 2022, and I'm your host, John A. Hoda. Our guest this week is Dr. Barbara Jean Magnani. Dr. Magnani is the former chair of the CAP Toxology Committee and member of the CAP Council on Scientific Affairs, and has served as the member-at-large of the TDM and Toxology Division of the AACC and as an editor of Clinical and Forensic Toxology News. Dr. Magnani is also one of the editors of the Clinical Toxology Laboratory, Contemporary Practice of Poisoning Evaluation, and Clinical Toxology Testing, a guide for laboratory professionals in the second edition. Her works in fiction include The Lily Robinson and and the Art of Secret Poisoning, Envision Press, and the Dr. Lily Robinson series, The Queen of All Poisons, The Power of Poison, and A Message in Poison by Encircle Publications. It is my pleasure to bring Dr. Magnani onto the show today. Welcome to My Favorite Detective Stories. I'm your host, John A. Hoda. Come sit by my campfire as we listen to crime fiction writers talking about their flawed fictional detectives. I will alternate weekly between award-winning and best-selling authors with debut authors who have overcome all the obstacles to get their first novel out into the world. This episode is brought to you by my own FBI agent Marsha O'Shea six-book series and my upcoming Gwendolyn Strong small-town cozy mystery series. To learn more, go to www.johnhoda.com, that's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com, and join my email list. Liberty City Nights, my Marsha O'Shea prequel novella, is available to my subscribers there for free. Hi, BJ. Welcome to the show. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Ah, you're quite welcome. And how's the weather there north of Boston today? Well, it's the way it's been for the last couple weeks. I say it's either windy, rainy, or windy and rainy. Yeah, I know. My backyard is a sponge and... uh, and walking my dog, it's uh, it's. Uh, I'm glad that I don't have sails on my ship. That's for sure. Because <laughs> that's right, and the house would take off. Uh, absolutely. So uh, we had the opportunity to meet, and you reminded me very nicely at Crime Bake, where you were a speaker, and I came rushing up to you afterwards and said, "Oh, I need to talk to you." And uh, I'm glad that you decided to come on the podcast. So that's really great. Um, but before we get there. Uh, today's date, as we record this, is uh, April the 21st, 2022, and uh, you've done some uh, a lot of things in your life, and I like to talk about how your careers have kind of taken the, the turns that they have, and we'll talk about writing craft a little bit, we'll talk about your books, and we'll talk about who you read. So uh, just uh, kind of take, uh, take me through the paces. Okay, well, I like to start by telling people that I'm really on my fourth career. Okay. So my first career, if you will, after graduating from college was as a high school teacher. So I taught science. And then later I went back to get a master's and a PhD so that I could work as a scientist. Where I did, I worked as a scientist. That got me thinking, if I can do this, maybe I could do something else. So I went back to medical school 
and I further trained to become a pathologist. Now, many people don't really know what pathologists do, except maybe what they see on TV. But really, we are what I call the physician's physicians or the doctor's doctor. And we're consultants who help make a diagnosis looking at different kinds of tissues or cells or body fluids. And after I did that for a very long time, it occurred to me that, you know, what I'd really like to do is write fiction. And I can tell you the story of how that happened, but maybe I'll save it for a little bit later. Anyway, now I am a full-time fiction writer. So this is my fourth career. Excellent. That's fantastic. So uh, the questions always are, are, how did your career's impact on your experience, which helped you with your writing? Oh, so tremendously. And this is where I'm going to tell you of actually how I got into writing these full-time novels. Okay. Um, in, in 2009, I was approached by the editor-in-chief of the journal Clinical Chemistry, which is the preeminent journal in our field. And he came to me and he said, you know, I'd like to have a special column in the journal where we can teach people about toxicology. Now, why don't you create some kind of a character and have her, you know, assassinate someone using a poison? And then what we'll do is you'll write that story, we'll run it, and in the next issue, you will say how your character did it and give us a little tutorial on the toxin. And in the meantime, everybody from around the world gets to write in and try and guess <laughs> what she used and how she did it. And mind you, I wrote anonymously under the pen name Lily Robinson for over a year. And then after that, at one of the big scientific meetings, we decided to do an unveiling and people realized, you know, who was Lily Robinson? It was me. And of course, the guessing was funny in the community because they were trying to figure out, is it a man? Is it a woman writing it? And they go, but wait, who do we know who really wears stilettos? And that's how they came on me. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. All right. Great story. I love it. The uh, stiletto wearing scientist writing uh, under a pseudonym. Right. And uh, I could keep doing S things, but <laughs> no, uh, that's so cool. And, but this was you taking, this is what a, what a hybrid that was. Think about it. You're, you're educating a, uh, a dry <laughs> journal. I mean, I'm not trying to be mean. Uh, no, I get it. Readership with, uh, a whodunit or a how, a howdunit, a howdunit. <laughs> Right. That's exactly right. And and after that, you know, sort of we did this for over a year, I collected the short stories. They're actually flash fiction and the recollections, as we call them, and put them together in a small book called Lily Robinson and the Art of Secret Poisoning. Now, so many of the scientists love that because it was very technical. But some of the lay people said, you know, I like the story, but could you lose some of that jargon? I just can't get past sodium channels and potassium channels. So that's how my first novel came to be, The Queen of All Poisons, is I took that character and her previous life that existed in flash fiction and on the journal and in the journal Clinical Chemistry, 
and I created a novel around her. Okay. So, uh, and this, uh, subject, the queen is, is it, is it the antagonist, the poisoner, or is it the protagonist, the figure, the one who figures out how done it? Yes. So the queen of all poisons is the protagonist of the series. And she is usually, um, at the behest of the government asked to eliminate someone who is a, what we'll call a bad actor, a terrorist who's leading attack on our country or another country. And they don't want to create a huge scene like, hey, let's just take a gun and shoot them or some other thing. So can you do it in a way, Lily Robinson, that the person will die, but it will look like a natural death? And that's kind of how she works. Really? Yeah. Uh, um, a uh, a quiet assassin. The, qu- the qu- right. She's the queen a quiet of all, assassin. The queen of all poisons. Yes. So she is the queen of all poisons, and of course, in the first book, you kept the name, is what you're saying. Yes, yes I kept okay. the name. The the toxin that she uses is also sort of known. The plant is the queen of all poisons. And the key thing for her, too, is she tries and finds out, or she doesn't do it herself. She has her, her spy intelligence um, operative collaborators find out for her, what are the medical conditions that this person might have? Because, you know, it might be out there. And if I can make it look like something he's already got going for him, you know, that just makes it all the better. I get it. Now... Here you are, though, uh, at that juncture of writing Lily Robinson for the journals, the journal, full-time job. And one day you say to yourself, or over a period of time, you say to yourself, you know what? I think I want to take a stab at writing fiction. How did that come about and what did you do to, to start the gears turning in that way of going from just an idea to, to getting some traction and finally getting published, becoming that debut author. How did that just kind of walk me through that uh, time period and, and, and talk me through the, all the changes that you went through? Yeah, I think this is another sort of mind blowing thing when people hear it. Um, I started writing the novel and I was working out on the novel And at the same time, I was the chair and pathologist-in-chief at Tufts Medical Center and Tufts University School of Medicine um, in the Department of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine. And so that's a pretty full-time job. Um, Yeah. And I loved uh, loved the job, absolutely loved what I was doing, um, but really finding I didn't have enough time to write. And so I was at a meeting with the CEO of the hospital, the dean of the medical school, and the CEO of the physician's organization. And at the end of the meeting, it was just the four of us, I said, you know, I think I'd like to step down as chair to become a full-time writer. And those three men looked at me like I was crazy. And they said, this is a joke, right? And I said, no, I'd like to try something different. And I gave them a year and a half to find my replacement. Meanwhile, I published um, 
the queen of all poisons. And when the new chair took over, I stepped back into a part-time role and I started working on the next book. And now I've really completely stepped away. And the third book came out on uh, April 20th. I've just finished a fourth book and I'm working on a fifth book. So it's been fabulous. Just absolutely fabulous. Okay. So during the Queen of All Poisons, you were a full-time chair at a prestigious university and with a heavy caseload and a lot of demand. How did you make the time for your writing and how did you, and how did your uh, writing process go and how did you get your book out into the world? Well, I found that I was mostly writing either at night, but especially on weekends. Um, I would just devote the entire weekend to doing it. Uh, I did at the time try and put together some author queries, you know, sort eight for agents, and I looked around. Um, but it wasn't until a friend of mine uh, who was a published author, and he was on his second book, he loved the what he calls the little book, the Lily Robinson and the Art of Secret Poisoning. And he sent that collection of short stories to um, the publisher at Encircle Publications, and they loved the premise. Mm. So they asked me uh, to send them the manuscript for The Queen of All Poisons. And I've been with them ever since. It's a great partnership, and I really enjoy uh, publishing with them. How fortunate, you know, that... Uh well, you had a body of work that they had the vision to see that if she can do that, maybe she can do this. And, and it was a maybe because, you know, they were taking a chance on you. And tell me uh, about that, that uh, the, and we talked about this briefly before we got on air about how one writes, um, technically how one writes reports and briefs and journals and uh, articles versus the writing, uh, the creative writing that goes into a how done it or who done it. No, you're exactly right. I mean, I spent most of my life writing either a technical scientific articles, research papers, book chapters. I have uh, several uh, reference texts uh, that I collaborated with uh, other scientists on. And so that was the kind of writing style I was used to. And I do think that, you know, not something else that we talked about, about uh, character arcs that grow, I think writers grow too. And I think there's a real transition from my first book to the third book in that, you know, I have to slowly um, let go of that scientific style and make it more user-friendly. And um, it's a learning process. You know, I was conditioned, if you will, to to write in a certain style. And fiction is completely different. So I've enjoyed it. And one of the things, you know, that I would certainly suggest to listeners who are writing books is that if you're interested, there are so many courses out there. Um, where you can learn how to write, you can learn what the process is, you can get connected with other writers and learn from them and listen to podcasts like this or uh, read it, read articles on how to write or get published. I don't think that I explored that enough before my first novel, and I kind of wish I did. Okay. Now, I, I tell anybody who will listen to me uh, this this story, uh, 
about how my very first novel came to be. I had the beginning and I had the end, but I didn't have the middle until one day my son and I were at a ballpark and he bought a baseball program and in the baseball program was my middle. And I said, oh my God, there it is. And he's like, what are you talking about? And I said, well, I had this idea kicking around in my head. Da, 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 da. And it, was a, it was a fictional story. And, uh, and, I, I, and he's like looking at me like I have two heads, you know? And I finally said, well, what's the problem? And he says, but, but you don't know how to write fiction. <laughs> and, right. I said, and I said, well, I'll learn. And uh, what did I do? I went out and bought a book called um, How to Write Dummy, uh, a Dummies Book, How to Write Fiction for Dummies. And uh, by Peter uh, Economy, like the economy, the state of our economy, and uh, uh, Randy Inger Manson. And uh, I'm glad I did because I kind of came into writing fiction with this blank page of not knowing how to write fiction. And I read that book and I still use it chapter and verse every day, not every day, before I start every novel to get into the proper framework going forward. But you're right. Um, there's an opportunity for us if as writers to acknowledge that maybe we don't know all the the craft of writing fiction and how would it, how how we could benefit from seeing somebody that does it well or somebody that can actually teach it how to do it well does that make sense yeah no absolutely right and i think it was only after the first novel that i bought some of those books that are you know up there with the classics of how to write and you learn a lot and uh, and i still take courses online mm -hmm. um there's always something new but uh, we both but from s different angles we both have the benefit of having uh real life editors uh developmental structure content editors look at our stuff before it gets into the world you from a publisher standpoint me from an independent standpoint who goes out and a la carte's, you know, those services. So can you talk a little bit about how maybe your editor on your first uh, novel uh, helped you with uh, some of the things that, you know, editors see with new writers? Yeah, I don't think uh, for the first novel that I fully embraced all the opportunities for editing. There was some editing, but it wasn't really until um, – you know, the later novels that I got more invested in looking at the different kinds of editors, like you say, like a developmental editor or someone who I have now, like beta readers, I call uh, someone who's my emotional, you know, how did you feel in your guts when you read the book? You know, what do you find believable? Who are you falling in love with? Um, and then people who are more, no, technically, this doesn't go, this doesn't make sense. Um, so I've realized that there's a lot of different people who can give you input on a book to help make it successful. Mm, so, right. And, uh, I, and I often joke that, uh, uh, I slept during much of my grammar and syntax classes in parochial school when I was growing up. And, uh, thank God I have, uh, obsessive compulsive proofreaders to help me because otherwise it would be ugly. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and, and I also, also in my writing days before I became a fiction writer, I always, you know, had strong editors 
for the uh, newspapers or the uh, art uh, magazines or the, the journals that I wrote for. And I, I thank them so much because they just helped me immensely see things that were not obvious to me. I, I never had that schooling, but as editors, they knew exactly what they were talking about. And how could I argue with them? They see that they do this work every single day, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. On the science front, you always, you can't submit a, a journal article without having it go through an editorial process. But it was different, you know, for me, um, when I got to, to, to fiction. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's a learning process. And I look at it this way, I, you know, I think of life as, uh, as lifelong learning. So, I'm excited about a new career and who knows, I might have a fifth career waiting ahead of me. I don't know. And, and, and you make a great point there and you, in the first part of it, not so much the fifth career, but the first part about <laughs> it was lifetime learner. One of the things I found with me is that, uh, I had an excellent career as an investigator, 44 years. I still have a couple cases out there. I still work an occasional case. Uh, one client, you know, that I've had for years asks me, and uh, things that I do normally in that in that area of expertise, I realized I didn't learn or I didn't I, I couldn't do it in my first or second year. It took me all those years to continue to grow and hone my craft. What makes me think that I could come into writing you now as a first time writer, writing a series and and that I would have all of my writing skills polished to the point similar to my investigative skills. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, so true, John. So yeah. true. And you have this, it. yeah, you have this, uh, I know I, I, it took me a little while to, to reestablish the humility of, Hey, I'm not that top gun investigator here. I'm this, uh, guy that is, uh, trying to put, uh, simple sentences together, you know? <laughs> and, uh, uh, definitely, uh, it helped me, uh, realize that if I, I didn't become a great investigator overnight and, it, and I do, took a lot of courses, I listened to a lot of great people. I did a lot of great things to self-improve myself. And why can't I do the, I can't, why can't I apply those same, uh, things to this, uh, this new career? So, so tell me about Lily a little bit, will you? Uh, tell me what makes her tick. I mean, you know, gotta admit she's a little different. Yeah, she's a very complex character because um, she suffered an emotional trauma, which I won't completely go into, so I don't want to do any spoilers. Right, right. But um, she uh, is initially driven in the first book um, by the loss of a child. And this hits her so, so much in her heart and her that she uses her brain to compensate. So she basically tries to turn off her external emotion. She's got all these internal things that spins, you know, but she tries to approach the world in a very clinical way. And, um, and again, she feels this tremendous guilt. And so she, you know, I think there's a line in the first book where she says she was sort of so traumatized that, you know, her brain was hijacked by the government to, to do some of these things. And, um, and then she just sort of falls into it. Um, so she struggles with that. And also you have to remember that as a physician, you know, her Hippocratic oath to do no harm, to help people to heal directly conflicts with this, um, 
ability that she has to use that knowledge to kill people. And she rationalizes it by basically saying that, you know, the, the good of the many outweighs the good of the one. And she thinks of herself as that sac- that sacrifice. Mm. Wow. That's, uh, and that all came to you in a burst one night and said, <laughs> Lily, or, uh, I mean, uh, did she, did, was she developed during the, um, the journal years in that way? Or, uh, did that have to be, uh, something that you had to think about in order for the, uh, to develop her more full personality in the queen of poisons? Yeah, well, I think, you know, obviously you don't get too in flash fiction and for the journal, you don't get into a lot of the deep stuff. It's very superficial. Um, but by the end of that series, um, you finally understand what's pushed her over the edge. Um, in that last story called When the Eyes Have It. And, oh, so, um, uh, so what's the second book called? Cause we, you well, just called no, it that the was the, the, the first, collection of short stories. You know, there's a whole series of short stories which were taken from the journal and put and put together in this book called Lily Robinson and the Art of Secret Poisoning. So what I'm saying is that by the end of the last of those stories, you as the reader have some sense of maybe what drives her. And then it really isn't until the Queen of All Poisons that it begins to be fleshed out, and you learn more and more over the three books in the series. That is so neat. Uh, I've got to ask you. I mean, maybe it has happened, and I'm sure it has. Now that I think about it, where maybe a writer uh, had a great idea for a short story or a collection of shorts involving one character. And decided, you know, this character has legs. Maybe I can do something more with this character and, and go full, go full length. And, uh, right now I'm, it's kind of escaping me. I'm, I'm probably thinking of maybe some of the uh, pulps back in the twenties and thirties where, uh, the writers got, uh, got their, um, their chops, you know, writing at eight, eight cents a word before they decide, you know, maybe I can, uh, maybe publish this person. Uh, I guess my thought is, uh, it's not that uncommon, but boy, you had a great opportunity to uh, take Lily further, and you did. What? What? I don't want to say what possessed you, but uh, when did that? When did that light bulb turn on? I really think it was from some of the uh, readers who asked me about turning it into a novel. Are you going to make this into a book? When are we going to read more about Lily Robinson? Uh, so I'm thinking, yeah, I really should do that. And I had a lot of drafts in the beginning. I wasn't really sure how to get it all going and give her the backstory and do all that. Um, but, you know, I, I, I did... I did use her as my protagonist. And interestingly, I pulled several of the other characters that worked from the short stories into the novels, and they have continued through the novels. One of my favorite characters is actually a very quirky chemist who lives in Hong Kong. His name is John Chi Lee, and um, he's a phenomenal uh, asset to the team because he's this brilliant 
chemist, you know, who can uh, figure out any kind of toxin that's out there. He can synthesize novel toxins. He's a real genius. And Lily loves working with him. But you never know with John Chi which side he's going to be on on which day. So he's just such an exciting character. He's one of my favorites, actually. Hmm. There you go. And it grew out of the original uh, shorts that you were doing. Exactly. And and while you were talking in the beginning about the reader excitement and are we going to see more Lily, these are your peers, right? These aren't these aren't the voracious uh, demographic of people that read in your trope. These are these are science people, right? You're exactly right. And um, uh, back then, the American Association for Clinical Chemistry would have these meetings in the summer. And, you know, you could get anywhere from 10,000 to 20,000 people who would attend, and they used to have a bookstore. And they used to carry my, you know, Lily Robinson and the Art of Secret Poisoning. And I would go up, go there, and um, sign books, but they'd carry it in their bookstore, along with only science books, no fiction, Mm -hmm. you know. And so there was a um, kind of a little bit of a... a, um, a craving for this, you know, something where they could see their science being used in another way, I think. Yeah, no, that makes sense and or uh, makes it entertaining. You know, there's an entertainment factor to Lily uh, while they can still get their uh, their their uh, fix of the science. Does that make sense? What I just Oh, absolutely. And in yeah. fact, that was the premise that the editor in chief had. He said, I want something that's educational, but entertaining. And you did that. So then when they came time for your fiction editors, uh, the people that want to sell your books commercially, uh, what was the, what were your marching orders from them and, and how to uh, help craft Lily, you know, in the fiction world? I think the hardest thing for me is it's kind of a double-edged sword. Let me put it that way. I love to still use the novels as a way to teach some science and medicine. And so Lily, to the chagrin of the other characters, will sometimes go off on these little science lectures. <laughs> yeah. And they all roll their eyes and they go, come on, can't you just like tell us what you mean instead of giving us a, a whole lecture. We don't care about, you know, the metabolism of this, that, or the other thing. And she has to catch herself. So I do still use the science in there, but over the course of the books, you know, some of the editors will say, gee, there's a little too much science that this, that you're talking about here. Why don't you cut it back or make it a little bit more user-friendly? But I, I like to think of the readers as being smart um, you know, that, yeah, you can, you can learn something from this too, you know? Oh, and, uh, there's two writers that, uh, that are in the deeply embedded in the, uh, fiction world. One who have had a chance to, uh, have on the podcast, Steve Barry, and the other is Clive Cult, Cussler, who has, I think, passed, uh, both when I got done one of their novels, I had a really good history lesson for the time period or for the setting. I mean, and, and they, they, they did a fine job of educating me probably more so than I would have learned, you know, on a 
cold, rainy day back in uh, high school, you know, sitting, staring out the windows and wondering why I can't play baseball that afternoon, you know? Uh, But anyhow, no, I mean, uh, and I think you're finding, uh, and what is your, uh, what is the reader feedback to Lily now in the, uh, outside of the uh, uh, academia world of academia? How, how, what's your, uh, what kind of feedback are you getting from uh, readers now? Oh, I, I think that they love Lily. Um, you know, again, she's, she's sympathetic in that she's had to go through a lot sort of emotionally and, um, and, uh, they, they respect her brilliance. Uh, but they, you know, there are, sufficiently enough other characters that if you, you know, feel like you want to skim a few of Lily's lectures, go for it. You know, Uh, there's a lot of other things going on, but I think overall very positive. And I think science people really do like it. And some of the non-science people say, wow, um, you know, it's fun to learn some toxicology. I never knew some of these things. Yeah. And 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 you also get to do all the uh, panels and on all uh, and all the uh, conferences that you go to. Um, you were a speaker at Crime Bake, uh, and can you just tell me a little bit about your topic and what our what my listeners missed that day? <laughs> yeah, so for for Crime Bake, I did a talk called uh, "Homicidal and Suicidal Poisonings." Uh, I used to uh, do some consulting work for the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner in Massachusetts. And, uh, you know, most of my cases were either homicidal or suicidal poisonings. Um, And so, you know, what you want to talk about at these crime conferences is, is how can you as the writer make your stories authentic if you're talking about pathology or talking about uh, you know, suicides or homicides um, from the perspective of the pathologists that are involved. I'm sure you as a policeman had to work with pathologists. I know I had to work with uh, uh, some uh, in my line of work, and it's a collaboration. It's a um, a partnership, you know, on on looking at a case. And so, you know, I try and relate some authentic authenticity, as I say, to, to the field so that writers can use that in their work. Absolutely. Now, um, you also mentioned to me off air that, uh, you'll be at, uh, thriller writers, uh, international thriller writers in New York this year. Are you going to be a speaker or just an attendee? No, it's the first time I'm attending Thriller Fest. I've not been to any of these things before. And I think, again, the pandemic has made it difficult to attend, some events that, you know, I might've wanted to attend previously. So I'm going to step out this year and see what it's going to be like. So I'll be down in New York in uh, the beginning of June. Yeah, that's right. It's not too far away and looking forward to it too. New venue uh, used to be off of Central Park. Now uh, I'm not Central Park off uh, Grand Central Station at the Hyatt. Now it's over in Times Square. So a little different venue, but uh, I think you'll have a blast. And you'll get to uh, see other people uh, in the tracks uh, doing what you had done at Crime Bank, you know, where they're going to be helping educate uh, authors on uh, not just the craft of writing, but also some of the specifics so that they can get things right when it comes to 
uh, doing this. I know that, is it, was it Crime Bake? Or maybe it is International Thriller Writers, one of them, where there's a whole day set aside for alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, ATF. To, saw that. Yeah, to come in and do their thing. And uh, believe me, you know, if you're a hungry author wanting to uh, get your uh, get your stories correct, um, what a great opportunity to sit down and listen to the experts talk about what really happens. And, and you know, I always like the, the, those experts that only say, and this is what happens in the movies. <laughs> and this is not how it really is in real life. And it's, and it helps. It helps a great deal. So it was, it was, I was just going to say that the first crime bake I attended, I had a breakfast with a group of people. Of course, I didn't know who they were. And um, I posted something later that said what it's like to have to be a pathologist and have breakfast with a bunch of crime writers. You know, the kind of questions you get asked. Mm, that must have been fun. It was fun. Yeah. yeah. And over breakfast, <laughs> over a meal, yeah, and and they have no problem asking those kind of questions, you know. Exactly. Oh, uh, I know it's funny. Um, uh, there was a time uh, during the pandemic when uh, I wanted to just get outside, and I would dictate uh, some of my stories outside, and I'd be walking by people, and I'd say to myself, if they, if they only understood I was, you know, what, what, what this was about as opposed to what they were hearing, you know? Uh, but you know, Hey, I was, uh, I was talking out loud about something very, uh, you know, serious, such as a murder or a suicide or something, you know, like that. And, uh, I got the strange looks, you know, cause I was dictating, but anyway, uh, for sure. So, um, you mentioned earlier five books and I, did you also say that Lily was just a trilogy? Not just a trilogy, but. Well, I think the first three books, um, I consider them a trilogy. So that's The Queen of All Poisons, The Power of Poison, and the one that just came out, A Message in Poison. And it sort of creates or, or completes, I should say, um, a personal arc that Lily has. Each one has its own mission, but it's it's more the growing of the characters and her discovery as she goes along. I am writing a fourth Lily book, which I'm thinking more of almost like a bit of a prequel, but kind of also with some current, you know, a current mission. So it's really taking you back and could be read independently. The others I think of more interdependent. And then the book that I just finished, which is out with my editor now, I wanted to try um, something completely different. Again, going along with my notion that, you know, life is about learning. And and so I wrote a romance novel. Neat. Yeah, just to try something else. Uh, no poison. No poison. Okay. Uh, uh, that's cool. I like that. So good for you. And and uh, did you change tenses, like go from uh, you know third person or first to first person, or did you do anything different in terms of uh, style? Well, in the Lily books, um, I alternate between first person Lily speaking and then third person really omniscient um, for the other chapters or when we need the point of view from you know uh, an overseer, if you will. 
Um, in the for the romance novel, I went the traditional where alternating chapters, his point of view, her point of view. Okay. So, and it's all in the third person limited. Oh, okay. So again, I'm just, I'm learning, I'm experimenting Mm -hmm. and having fun. Oh, that's absolutely. I mean, we talked about this briefly before we came on. Uh, My uh, protagonist from uh, six books was a badass FBI agent by the name of Marsha O'Shea. And uh, I'm now writing a uh, cozy mystery series with a, uh, a woman slightly older, but uh, a former kindergarten teacher. So, I mean, totally different, but still, um, both are still, uh, I guess, whodunits, for lack of a better word. One's just uh, police procedural, the other's uh, cozy mystery. But uh, yeah, I, I just said to myself, you know, I, I want to try something other, other than what I'm always used to. Like, you're, you, know, you know, poison's like the back of your hand. Now you're taking a stab at romance. Hey, why not? Right? Life is right. too short. So, uh, so, John, I have a question for you. Yeah. Um, how hard is it for you to have all your protagonists be women? Um, not hard. Than a hard-boiled PI. Not hard at all. And and I I did a little book talk on this. Not talk like T A L K, but talk T O K, like TikTok. Yes. And the book talk that I did, the TikTok book talk that I did was uh, me saying, well, John, you're asked about how you write uh, women protag- strong female protagonists. And, and I went on to say, well, the, reason, the way I can do that is I take all of the uh, positive traits that I've seen in female investigators, observed in female investigators over the last 40 years of my career for all the positive traits, and then I just add in all the negative ones from me. <laughs> and I know it's a joke, but you know it, it's it's more than a joke. It's that uh, I, because I was in a male-dominated and very patriarchal type of uh, uh, police departments or insurance companies or private investigation firms, whatever, uh, I always marveled marveled at uh, the women that could uh, do their work uh, professionally, effectively, efficiently, and do so sometimes at the, um, while still having to deal with the idiots. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And I always kept an eye towards that and said, gee, I've got it made because I don't have these kind of obstacles or or problems in my way. How can they do it and do it so well? And, you know, I think back to the uh, quote from Ginger Rogers. Yes, I was thinking of it as you were speaking. And if you know it, you can say it. If you're not, if you don't, I'll say it. But Well, you can, well you can, I do everything Fred Astaire does, only backwards and in heels. Exactly. And my life, true. <laughs> yeah. So, so to me... I had an opportunity to observe uh, these strong females in uh, my setting, my milieu. And I marveled, again, I use the word marvel, at the ability for them to overcome some of the uh, sexism, uh, not so much ageism, 
but issues related to uh, you know policing, law enforcement, investigations, and what have you. And uh, I was a student all those years. So uh, when I decided to create my female protagonists in my novels, uh, it wasn't a real stretch for me because um, I concentrated mostly on uh, them as investigators and that was kind of genderless. Do you know what, mm-hmm. do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, I, my, I don't have my characters, you know, after a rainstorm applying makeup or, you know, the hosiery not, you know, being, uh, or the hosiery being uh, wet or whatever. I mean, I'm sure I, I can think of those things, but, you know, it's more of uh, what's going on in my protagonist's head as to, what did they just learn? How can how do they apply that towards the uh, the case that they're working on? So I, I kind of became gender neutral in terms of that, but I joke by saying all the positives because of what I learned for forty years and all the negatives from me. So I mean, it, it, and it works. Believe it or not, it works. Um, if if my uh, if my protagonist is doing something that isn't really. Uh, in keeping with, uh, you know, all the, all the, the stereotypes. Well, it's because it's my behavior. <laughs> it's mine and I can take ownership for that. So, but thanks for asking that question. Um, uh, I don't see a problem with, uh, females writing male, uh, detectives. Uh, I, I, I don't, um, not at all. I look yeah, at. No, I don't. I don't see a problem either way. It's. Um, I was just curious. Uh, obviously, I have male characters, but but the protagonists, um, certainly in the Lily Robinson series, you know, it's it, it's she's it's a woman as yeah. Lily Robinson. In the romance novel, the two protagonists, one's a man, one's a woman, and um, but I like your idea in the sense that when you're writing something that's a detective story. Really, you're using the same process and the skin is just different just because you could put either skin on that person, Mm -hmm. male or female. Now, I've got to be honest with you that with the uh, Cozy Mysteries, I spent a lot of time with a friend of mine who taught in a very small town uh, a lot of kindergarten. And I spent a good two hours talking with her, interviewing her for my character. And uh, the the acknowledgments will be made when the book is written and, and it's published. But I really thought of um, her as a role model for uh, my uh, kindergarten teacher turned amateur sleuth. So... It, Knowing her for forty some years, uh, it wasn't hard for me to put uh, put that person into on the page. Do you follow right. what I'm saying? Yes, well, of course. Yeah. yeah, so it made it a little bit easier for me to do so. But uh, because you know I don't know squat about teaching kindergarten or elementary school, but you know because that was very part and parcel of that character's uh, persona, I had to learn. 
So I went to somebody that I trusted and somebody that I, I think would make a good role model for that character. And I picked her brain. So that's another way of doing it too, right? You know, you, you learn from other people, uh, what makes those, uh, that, those teachers tick, what makes those people tick in those, in those different careers. So anyway, but thanks for asking. I appreciate that. And yeah, no, it's not, um, it's not hard. I, I don't feel, uh, I don't feel like, uh, it's a stretch for me. I just, I'm kind of gender neutral when it comes to it. Just, you know, good investigator is a good investigator is a good investigator. Apologies to uh, Gertrude Stein. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, uh, so while you were, uh, in your career prior to writing Lily, who did you read and who did you like reading? I have a variety of reading tastes. So, you know, one of my favorite authors, I've mentioned, uh, him when I, when, when I'm asked this is, is Michael Crichton. Mm. Um, I found him to be, to have the ability to research a topic and then write a novel where I always felt I was learning something and being entertained at the same time. You know, he was trained as a physician. That's right. He, he really didn't want to become a physician, but, um, you know, he used that training, I think, in the discipline of his writing and certainly in his ability um, to be able to communicate facts and uh and I think it was great. I'm, I'm also, you know, I read everything that uh, Arthur Conan Doyle wrote, who was also a physician. Mm -hmm. and, I did uh, not know that he was a physician. Yes, he was a physician. Okay. Um, and, and did you know, he write so I, other than Sherlock Holmes? Uh, well, I have his whole Sherlock Holmes collection here. So, right. you know, I, I read all the stories. And so there was somebody who was trained. And so there are many physician writers that I've read. But I've liked other things, too. You know, a fa favorite books I've read several times, like uh, the Tolkien trilogy. Okay. Um, you know, love that kind of stuff. And uh, then currently now I'm reading a memoir about a, a pathologist who, who um, you know, worked in Ireland and Scotland and about what it was like as a woman, um, you know, trying to, to work in that system. And then I read a lot of Encircle authors, you know, um, Matt Cost and uh, Sandy Manning, Kevin St. George, Sharon Dean. I like, we like to read each other's works. Um, so, you know, I, a, a variety of things. Yeah. Matt, uh, came on, uh, I interviewed him a couple of weeks ago and he'll be uh, appearing. Matt Cost will be appearing a month before you in the show. Yeah. So definitely, um, that's interesting that you, you read, you read, around your genre but you also read people in your in your um who, who are published by uh your publisher which is cool yeah that's really neat you know a little love for everybody you know it doesn't hurt uh spreading the love uh i i tend to be uh well since it's my favorite detective stories and i'm kind of a junkie for that i i just my world is pretty much just about flawed fictional detectives. And if you give me somebody I can grab onto and they write in a, and it's, and that's a serious character, I'm off. I'm running. That's it. You know, next three or four months, it's, you know, book one, book two, book three, whatever, however long it takes me to go through them. Uh, part, part of that is because, well, uh, I always read, uh, flawed fictional detectives 
uh, in my during my career um, for inspiration. And uh, who could not, if you're a detective, who could not learn from what uh, A. Conan Doyle did, Arthur Conan Doyle did, with Sherlock Holmes, with the powers of observation or deductive reasoning? You know, how could you not? I mean, that the, the books that you have there from uh, A. Conan Doyle uh, on uh, the adventures of Sherlock Holmes should be standard reading in an advanced uh, investigations course. I, I, I'm telling you that as an investigator mm-hmm. because – uh, clearly, um, the, the writing is such that, uh, it is so educational, but it's done in an inspirational fashion as well. So that's why the podcast is what it is. Well, you know, a sign that I used to have on my office door at the hospital said, and you probably recognize this, when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Amen. That comes from uh, study in Scarlet. I don't know, but, but I think it, it's 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 from A. Conan Doyle for sure. It is. It is yes, indeed. It is uh, Sherlock Holmes. Uh definitely. Well, we could go on forever, but we can't. And uh, I do appreciate it. Did I did I forget to ask you anything that you think you know you were hoping that we were going to cover today, and that uh, you, you regret not talking to me about? Um, just one little thing at the end here. Um, yeah. I'm a, you know, as a physician myself, I am a, a huge supporter of making sure that people get the health care that they need. And so I donate a portion of the proceeds from my novels to the College of American Pathologists Foundation for a program called C Test and Treat, where we provide free uh, breast and cervical cancer screening for women in need. Nice. Um, do me a favor. Uh, send me a link to that uh, entity, if you could. Um, and I will make sure that when this goes out, uh, when it does, that uh, we mention not only uh, your website where people can reach you, but also this link for your charity. And I'll make sure to say that in the bio, uh, that proceeds from uh, your books go to this uh, charity. And that way you get a little uh, love on that. And also uh, my subscribers to my email list will say, hey, uh, when they read, uh, when they listen to this podcast, that they'll, they'll, they'll know there's an opportunity there for them to put a few shekels in that, in that, uh, in those coffers as well. Oh, that's great. I appreciate it. And I also oh. encourage your readers to look at my poison blog and they can learn a little bit about poisons. I just released one today on scorpion toxins. Oh, that is so cool. Oh, now you got me going to reach over there for that later on this afternoon. So how can people reach you, BJ? So uh, they can reach me through my website, uh, Um Well, we have to spell that, M-A-G-N-A-N-I. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, um, but you can Google me and find me on the web. I have on the website, as I said, it also tells you where I'll be in person and when or on Zoom. And uh, again, I would encourage people to read the Poison blog and get a little bit of a fun education on different toxins out there Mm. and learn a little bit about my books. There you go. 
Well, I thank you very much for coming on today. I certainly appreciate it. I had a fun time. Probably talked a little bit more than uh, I normally do, but then that's because you asked me open-ended questions, which I had to then answer. So I do appreciate that. And I thank you for your time with me today. It was wonderful. All right. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. I hope I've earned your interest and your time. Our guest next week is Mark Cameron, New York Times bestselling author, Mark's Jericho Quinn's thriller series debuted in 2011. Since then, he has written eight Quinn novels and four Arliss Cutter novels featuring a deputy U.S. Marshal based in Alaska, including the most recent Cutter, Bone Rattle, and the upcoming Cold Snap, which was uh, April of 2022 from Kensington Publishing Company. Mark is the author of five Tom Clancy, Jack Ryan novels for the Tom Clancy estate, including the most recent Shadow of the Dragon and the upcoming Chain of Command. A retired Chief Deputy U.S. Marshal, Mark spent nearly 30 years in law enforcement. He holds a second-degree black belt in jiu-jitsu and is a certified law enforcement scuba diver and tracking instructor. The job of a Deputy U.S. Marshal is extremely varied. Mark's career focused primarily on dignitary protection and fugitive operations. As a member of the Rural Tactical Tracking Unit for the U.S. Marshal's District of Alaska, Mark Teenley tracked lost hikers, hunters, and fugitives in the vast Alaska bush. His assignments have taken him from Alaska to Manhattan, Canada to Mexico, and dozens of points in between. Originally from Texas, Mark is an avid outdoorsman, sailor, adventure motorcyclist. He and his wife live in Alaska, where they've raised three children. It's my pleasure to bring on Mark Cameron to the show next week. This episode was brought to you by my own FBI agent, Marsha O'Shea, six-book series, and my upcoming Gwendolyn Strong Small Town Cozy Mystery Series. To learn more, go to www.johnhoda.com, that's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com, and join my email list. Liberty City Nights, my Marsha O'Shea prequel novella, is available to my subscribers there for free.